All right, good morning again, everyone. If you're watching us online this morning, we're so glad you're joining us. Whether you're on vacation, whether you're home, whatever you're doing, thanks for joining us this morning. And all of you that are here live, as you just saw, we are continuing a series that's called That's a Great Question. Every week we take a, a question related to a cultural topic or a, or a theological topic. And, and there's a threefold purpose for this series. First, if you're a Christian, we want you to grow deeper in your understanding of biblical truth. So that, second, you can step into conversations with people in your relational world um, and share what you believe about topics or Bible truth from a biblical perspective. And third, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, it's our prayer that these messages would bring you one step closer to fully surrendering your life to Christ. Question we're answering today is, is the Bible really a love story? Is the Bible really a love story? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you for all the folks that are here, whether they're regular attenders at Central, visitors, friends, family. We thank you, Lord, for those that you've gathered here and online. And I pray, Lord, that the words that I'm about to share would uh, have spiritual meaning and impact. That Holy Spirit, you would, you would take the scriptures and bring them to life. You would help us to understand uh, the scriptures that we're studying today. Uh, help us to understand where we fit into your love story. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something this morning I've never, ever done in all my years of ministry. I'm going to let you determine and choose what sermon I preach. Okay, I'm going to give you two choices. Okay. Uh, I can either preach a sermon on the rapture of the church, or I can preach a sermon on the greatest love story ever told. So if you want me to preach a sermon this morning on the, the rapture of the church, just slip your hand up. Six of you. Okay. If you want me to preach a sermon on the greatest love story ever told, all the women are putting their hands on the greatest love story ever told. Psych. It's the same sermon. Okay. It really is. So, so you know what we love? We love storybook weddings. We, we love good love stories, right? There's something about a good wedding that just makes us all gooey, right? I mean, storybook type weddings, right? <laughs> Famous type weddings. Right? The, the storybook wedding that I remember most, not because I watched it, because I didn't, but it was in 1981, uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles. Um, the reason I remember it was because I was living in California and it was aired live at 3 a.m. California time. And you, you wouldn't even believe how many of our friends got up at 3 a.m. to watch the wedding live. Not only did they get up at 3, they got up at 2 because they wanted to watch all the pregame festivities. Guys, like when you watch NFL Countdown, you watch the hour before the actual game because, because they wanted to know where she got her dress and they wanted to know who did her hair and they wanted to know who did the nails and they wanted all of the, the, the gossip from the tabloids about this wedding because we love the details of a love story. And the Bible is a love story. It's the story of a father who sent his son into a far country to find a wife. And the son goes into the far country and he's willing to pay any price for his bride. And he finds a bride of such incredible beauty and such incredible grace that he's willing to die in order to be with her. Do you understand that if you're a Christian, 
Right now, you are the bride of Christ. You are the object of his passion and his relentless and faithful love. I hope you feel that right now. You are the, the bride of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian right now, he has his eye on you. He is pursuing you. He is courting you because the Bible says God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to find a bride of which he hopes you are a part. All right. The, um, the climax of human history might surprise you is the wedding of Jesus and the church. That's the, that's the climax, the, the, the end of the book, the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, verse seven says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The, 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 the climax of history, this is the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, everything climaxes with this wedding between Christ and the church, the cross of Jesus Christ is not the climax of human history. The cross was a means to an end. The cross made it possible for Jesus to marry his bride. If we, if we don't understand that the rapture is part of God's love story, we're going to miss it. If we try to understand the rapture of the church by looking at it through any lens except the lens of God's love story, we are going to get tangled up in theological weeds. We are going to be pursuing lifeless, dead theology, interesting stuff, but no life, unless we understand that the rapture of the church is part of this incredible love story that we are part of. So what is the rapture? What does that word mean? The word rapture in the New Testament means to, to catch away or to snatch away or to remove forcefully. Uh, it's the belief that, that at some point in history, God is going to take away or remove the church from the earth for a divine purpose. And we, we find the foundation of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's read those verses this morning. Paul tells, we, we tell you this directly from the Lord. This is direct revelation from Jesus. We who are still living when the Lord returns, second coming of Christ, will, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died, Christians that have already died in history, will rise from their graves. That will be their resurrection. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain when Christ returns, we will be caught up or raptured up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Well, if, if Paul says there's this catching away of the church, the next question is, when does that happen? When, when in human history are we going to see this catching away or removing of the church. Well, last week I put up a timeline. I wanna throw that up again and we're gonna fill it in a little bit even more. So you see the cross and then you see the next point on the timeline is the day of Pentecost about 33 AD. 
That's when the church was started. That's when the Holy Spirit was given to all of the Christians that were in Jerusalem around 33 AD. And Peter reminds us that that's the beginning of the last days. That's when the, the prophetic time clock started ticking. And so now it, it's counting down until Christ returns. So that was the beginning. And we are in the time of the Gentiles. When Jesus came, he was a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish Messiah, but his own people rejected him. The, the Jewish people hardened their hearts, they rejected Christ and they crucified Christ, which opened the door for the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to go to all the nations of the world, like we prayed for Kendra today, to, to bring the hope of salvation through Christ to every nation in the world. We're in the season or the time of the Gentiles right now, which leads us up to the next point on the timeline, which I believe is the rapture of the church, which happens right before this seven year period of tribulation. We'll talk more in detail about that. After the tribulation is the, the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. Jesus comes back and he will rule and reign from the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. After that thousand year period, uh, there will be the, the great white throne judgment. God will judge the wicked, cast them into the lake of fire, and then he will destroy the current earth and heavens and he will create a new heaven and a new earth and that will be our eternal state with him, okay? So as you, as you look at that, that timeline, uh, you have to understand that not everyone agrees with that timeline. Uh, this, is a, this is an issue that's, there's a lot of different opinions about it and very reputable scholars on, on every different side of the conversation. And so I, I had to ask myself the question, because some people put the, the rapture of the church midway through the seven year tribulation period. Some people put the rapture of the church at the very end of the tribulation period. Some people don't believe there is any rapture. Some people don't believe, don't believe that there's a thousand year physical reign of Christ on the earth. They think that that's symbolic. So there's a lot of different opinions. So I ask myself, if we come across these theological issues where there's disagreement, should we even teach on it? You know, if it's complicated and everybody believes different things, should we even try to teach it? And the answer, my answer to that is yes, we should. But if we're going to approach it, we need to do it with great humility. An attitude that says, I may not have all the answers. An attitude that says, my view may not be the only right view. And so I want to approach it from that perspective this morning. I want to share with you my view, but I want to try to do it with humility, okay? And say that, you know, this, this is, I, the other thing is, if you're going to teach on this, you need to be strongly convicted that what you are sharing, you believe is absolutely biblical. And what I'm sharing today, I believe is absolutely biblical. But here's the good news. You can take a deep breath, okay? The good news is, this is not a core Christian doctrinal issue. Your salvation doesn't ride on where you put the timeline. I mean, we can disagree on this and still walk in love and unity together as Christians. This is a secondary tertiary issue. This is not at the core. You don't have to leave the church if you disagree with where I place the rapture on the timeline. But I want to talk for a few minutes about why I am convicted that the second coming of Christ and particularly the rapture of the church comes before the seven year tribulation period. And I think it's important to us. I think it's important to us because it affects how we prepare for the coming of Christ. So four quick thoughts about that. The first is this, what, what convinces me? The language of imminence, the language about imminence. Imminence means something is about to happen. Imminence means something could happen at any time. There, there's nothing that's keeping this thing from happening. 
And when we talk about the return of Christ being imminent, we're saying that there, there, there are no other things in history that need to happen before Jesus Christ could return. Okay? So, so look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 32. Jesus said, learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. There's an evidence in the fig tree of a changing of a season. In the same way, when you see all of these things, now Jesus has been talking to the disciples about the signs of the last days or the end times. When you see all of these things, you can know his return is very near. In fact, it's right at the door. It could happen. In, I mean, the door could burst open at any time. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus is saying after the generation that he was speaking to passes away, y'all better be ready to go because this thing could happen at any time. That's imminence. Skip down to verse 42. Here's what Jesus says. Because of that, you must keep watch for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. How often? All the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. My interpretation of Jesus' words is that he believed that his return could happen at any time. So be ready. Be watching. Be expectant. Uh, be ready for this because you don't know when it's going to happen. Okay, so if someone places the rapture of the church in the middle of the tribulation, there can't be a sense of imminence because there are things that are going to happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation that haven't happened yet that we're still waiting for. In other words, one of the things is the Antichrist has to appear and be recognized. The Antichrist is going to broker a peace treaty between Israel, a seven-year peace treaty between Israel and her Arab neighbors. There's going to be the, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on the Jewish mount, in, on the temple mount in Jerusalem, all in that first three and a half years. So if, if, if the, the, the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, we can relax. We can take a deep breath because there's still some things that have to happen before Christ comes back. Now, if you push that back to the end of the tribulation, there's even more stuff that has to take place. So the Antichrist is going to step into the newly built temple where they're offering sacrifices. And the Antichrist is going to say, I'm God. And he's going to demand that everybody worship him. The, the Antichrist is going to demand that if you want to buy or sell in that time, you have to take the mark of the beast. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish Christian missionaries that take the gospel to all the nations during that last part of the tribulation. So if, it's, if the, the rapture is after that, or there is no rapture, we're good. I mean, this thing isn't coming any time. In other words, we don't even have to start getting nervous until the Antichrist appears. And, and then we're going to begin to see the chips fall, right? But we still got, we still got time if, if the, the rapture isn't imminent, if it couldn't happen at any moment. The second reason I believe it's not just the eminence of the return of Christ. It's the language about Israel in the Bible, the, the language about Israel in this story. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what's the purpose of the tribulation? Like it's going to be horrific. 
the number of people that are going to die through famine, war, disease, um, natural disasters is going to be, we aren't going to see anything like it. So why, why, why is this going to happen in the world? What's, what's the point? And, and the reason we are going to see this tribulation period is because God is going to turn his attention onto the nation Israel. And God is going to judge Israel for crucifying Christ. They rejected Christ. It's not for the purpose of destroying Israel, but for the purpose of softening their hearts and ending their rebellion against God so that they, they will see the need to receive Christ. Okay? So let's look at a couple scriptures here as we get started. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, he says, he's looking ahead to this time in all history. There has never been such a time of terror. Like we go through hard times. We, we lose children. We lose parents. We suffer physically. We, we, I mean, as Christians, there's persecution in life. Christians are being martyred all over the world. Like, like Jesus said, in this, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, right? And we are. Nothing like the seven years of tribulation. He said, never has there been such a time of terror. And then he says, he defines it, it will be a time of trouble for my people, who? Israel. Another version calls it Jacob's distress or Israel's distress. This is going to be the worst time in history for the Jews. Holocaust was horrible. This is worse. This is, this is called Jacob's distress, Israel's distress, as he looks ahead. But in the end, they will be what? Saved. This is a, a redemptive plan of God to, to end their rebellion, to soften their hearts, to break their will so that they would accept the Messiah. Let's, let's go to the next scripture, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel says a, a period of 70 sets of seven. That's measured in years. So 70 times seven, 490 years has been decreed for your people, Israel. Now, as you look at this, this timeline, God is focusing on the people of Israel and your holy city, Jerusalem. For what purpose? To finish or end their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to make them right with God, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place or rebuild the temple. <clears throat> so Daniel talks about 70 sets of seven or 70 weeks. And that, that time period began when the, the command was given to rebuild the temple way back in the, in the fifth century BC. If you move from that time and, and uh, the, the seventh week or the last week is separated from the first 69. <clears throat> so 69, excuse me, 69 times seven, 483. From the time they were given the command to rebuild the temple, 483 years later leads right to Christ. Amazing. But there's still a seventh week, seven, seven years. And that is the seven years of tribulation. And we are in between the 69 weeks of Daniel leading up to Christ and the seventh week or the seven years of tribulation. So we're, we're in between that right now. The purpose of that seventh week is to bring Israel back to the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you discipline a child, <clears throat> excuse me, when they haven't done anything wrong? I hope not. That would be really bad. 
But so, so we, we discipline our children when they sin. We discipline them when they're in rebellion. We discipline them when they do things wrong. So the question might be, why isn't the church in the tribulation, right? Why, why aren't, do, do we not deserve to be punished for sin? Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. Yes, we do deserve to be punished for sin because we're sinners. But no, we don't deserve the wrath of God because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God on himself for us. When Jesus died on the cross, it says he took the punishment of humanity's sin on himself. And we are now released from or free from the wrath of God. Amen. Amen. So the, the time of the tribulation, we are, we are free from God's wrath because in this life we accepted Jesus Christ. And we receive the free gift of grace and forgiveness through Christ. So we don't come under the wrath of God in our lives. So God is disciplining Israel so that in the end they will repent. So one more scripture. Daniel says, as for me, I heard, but I did not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Tribulation. What's going to happen? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words will be kept secret and sealed up until the very end time. In other words, Israel has this kind of blindfold on. They're, they're not recognizing Christ. And, and it's not going to change until the very end time. And then he says this, many will be purged in Israel, cleansed and refined after this tribulation period. But the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand that this is the wrath of God with the purpose of turning people to Christ. The tribulation is like one last chance for people to get their lives right with God. The wicked won't understand. But those who have insight will understand. Who will have insight? The Jews. Why will they have insight? Because they have the scriptures. So in that time, when they're, when they're seeing this punishment, this wrath happening, they're going to they're going to they're going to get insight from the scriptures. They're going to go back and read Daniel. They're going to go back and read Ezekiel. They're going to go back and read Isaiah. And they are going to figure out like Isaiah 53 that says the Messiah is going to be crushed and pierced and he's going to die. But then he's going to be resurrected. And they're going to go, oh, my goodness, we killed Jesus. We killed the Messiah. The one that was sent forth, they're going to recognize that. And the Bible says they are going to mourn and grieve over their sin. They're going to recognize they killed the one God had sent to them. And in the end, they are going to turn and receive Christ. So that's the whole purpose. People ask me, well, Jeff, can anyone be saved during the tribulation? And the answer to that is yes, during that period. Gentiles can be saved as well as Jews. The problem is Gentiles are going to, they're going to harden their heart. They, they've already hardened their heart. And they're going to curse God during this time. They're, most of them will not turn to God, but they can. So that leads us to the third point, which is this, uh, the language about deliverance. The language about deliverance. This is the romantic part. Ladies, pay attention. This is the romantic part. This is when Jesus comes back and he sweeps away his bride and saves her from danger. This is when the knight in shining armor climbs the, the, the tower of the castle and he slays the dragon, right? And he takes his, the, the princess away and, and they live happily ever after. This is the romantic part because the promise of, of scripture is to deliver us from the wrath to come. Amen? To deliver us from God's wrath. Here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. We're delivered from the wrath to come. He, Jesus, is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Now, if you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, the theme of those books is the, the, the second coming of Christ, the tribulation, and the Antichrist. So, so he's saying, let's go back to that if we can. 
God has rescued us through Christ from the terrors of the coming judgment. Go to the next one, chapter 5. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting our, on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive what? Salvation, salvation through Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus takes this idea a step further in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he says, God not, not only delivers us from the, the general wrath to come, but from the hour of God's wrath. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus is writing letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but they're not limited to those churches historically. These are truths that are true for every church in every dispensation. He says this, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. In other words, you've gone through tough times. Your faith has been challenged. There's been times you've wanted to quit on God. There's been times you've wanted to, to give up. But because you've held fast to your faith in Christ, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm going I'm to keep you from the, the hour of trial. The, the hour of God's wrath is a time period. It's a, it's a specific amount of time. It's a, it's a seven-year period of tribulation, in my opinion. And notice that Jesus doesn't say he's going to save us or deliver us through the trial, but he's going to deliver us from the trial, from the hour of God's wrath. Big difference. Because, because some people believe that Christians are going to be alive during the tribulation. We're going to go through the tribulation with the Jews and, and all of the people who don't know Christ. We're going to go through that time, but we're going to be saved from the effects of it. We're going to go through it, but we're going to be delivered from all of the horrible things that are happening. And Jesus said, that's impossible. Here's what he said in Luke 21. He said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day, the day of the Lord is always the tribulation. That day of the Lord will close on you suddenly like a trap because it will come on who? Everyone. Everyone who lives on the face of the whole earth, none escape. So if you're, if you're a Christian and you believe that you go through the tribulation, then you are going to suffer, according to Jesus, everything that everybody else suffers. You're not going to be saved from these difficulties. You're going to walk through it if that's your perspective. Jesus says, so, so be always on the watch, be ready, and pray that you may be able to have strength to endure? No. Escape. Pray that you don't go through it. Pray that you're delivered from it, not through it. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. The hour of testing we are, we are delivered from. I believe that God has to remove the church from the earth before the tribulation in order to turn his sole focus upon Israel and the unrepentant because we have been saved and delivered from the wrath that's to come. And the last thing I want to say, what, what convinces me that the, 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 the rapture happens before the tribulation? It's the language of marriage. The language of marriage. The, the rapture reflects a lot of Jewish 
wedding traditions. And I want to share a few Jewish wedding traditions with you, and then we'll make the, we'll make the comparison in just a second. So in, in Jewish culture, when you were going to get married, the groom would pay a price for his bride. And the way that worked was he would find the woman that he wanted to be married to, unless it was a matchmaker situation. But he then would go uh, to, to talk with the, the father of the bride. And sometimes the groom's father went and they, they worked out a financial deal. Like, what is it going to cost me to get this woman? What, what are you going to charge me to, to take your daughter? And, and there would be a price that was agreed upon. And then they would sign this legal document that was called a marriage covenant or a marriage contract. It, it, was, it was binding. It, to get out of that, even though you weren't married yet, you had to go through a divorce process, a legal process. So this was a legal thing. And there had to be a price that was paid. What was the price Jesus paid for his bride? His blood, his life. He gave everything. That, that was the agreement. And so Jesus paid the price, just like the groom went and secured the price, signed the document so that he could receive his bride. The second thing was, after they signed the marriage covenant, the groom left. The, the groom went back to his father's house to build an addition on that house for his bride and himself, another house. So he would leave. He'd be gone for up to 12 months, 12-month period. So remember when, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, w w went to see her cousin Elizabeth and she was gone for like three months? Why? Because Joseph was preparing a place. That's what they did. The third thing is, it was the father of the groom that determined the time when the groom could go back and get his bride. The groom didn't determine. I think, I think it's just, it's so real. It's so raw. It's so honest. Here, here, here's what would happen. Like The groom would go back and he'd start building this house or this place for he and his bride to stay in. And he just wanted to be with her. So he probably threw some drywall up and said, that's good. Let me go back and get her. And dad said, uh-uh, you're going to do this right. So he'd make, he'd make him build a right home for the bride. The groom never knew when he was going to go back. I think part of that was the father recognizing a maturity level in his son. Are, are you ready now to go back? So it was the father that determined when the groom returned to receive his bride. And the Bible says it's the father, God the father. He's the only one that knows when Christ is coming back for his bride. The next step in that was the bride who had an abandoned groom. Uh, she had to wait in readiness. She didn't know when he was coming back. So she had, to, she had to stay ready for his return. She had to keep herself pure. She couldn't be promiscuous. She couldn't be fooling around while he was in. She couldn't wonder, well, maybe he's not coming back so I can get involved with someone else. No, this was a, a binding contract. So, so uh, you remember when... Um, um, Mary went away to be with Elizabeth and she comes back with a bump and Joseph's like, uh, what happened? I come back and you're pregnant. You broke the contract. That, that's why it was such a big deal. They had agreed upon this marriage covenant and now it seemed like she was out fooling around. So the, the bride had to remain pure and holy and we are in a state of waiting for our groom to return. Did you know that? How are we to live until Christ comes back? We are to live in holiness. We are to live in purity. We are to live in readiness. We are to be making our hearts and our lives ready for the return of Christ because he could break through the door at any moment. Amen. And we've got to keep our hearts in the right place. The fifth thing is the groom returned then to take her home. When the father said it was okay to go back, he, the groom came back and he whisked his bride away to their new home at the father's house. And there, there were usually friends and family already gathered there for the ceremony. 
Do you like weddings? Weddings are cool because there's all kinds of aunts and uncles and friends and people that you haven't seen in a long time. It's like a, like a reunion. You get to, get to catch up with people. That, that's what this is like. They, they'd go to the wedding, and when the groom came back, they'd be there, and there'd be this reunion in life. And the last thing is, they would consummate the marriage, and then they would celebrate the marriage for up to seven days. The reception would be for seven days. Some of you read John chapter two, the, the story of Jesus changing the water to wine. You went, how could they run out of wine? Like, it's just a two hour reception. We only had a hundred people there. How could they? No, try feeding people and giving them wine for seven days. That's a different deal. And so they, they ran out of wine because these receptions lasted a lot longer than they do in our culture. With that in mind, I want to read John chapter 14, verses one to three. Because this is a set of verses about the rapture. Listen. The night before Jesus went to the cross, the night before he died, his disciples were nervous. They were worried because they knew he was leaving. So here's what he says to them. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you because I am going there to prepare a place for you. Where is Jesus now? He's in the, the upper room with his disciples celebrating the Passover. What is he saying? I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, the return of Christ, and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going like a, like a groom would go away. I'm going to prepare a place for us. And then when the father says it's time to come back, I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you to myself. And we are going to go there. And, and Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, man, the, the saints that have already died, they're going to meet us in the air. There's going to be this great reunion. Everyone that you knew that was a Christian, young or old, that died before you, you're going to be reunited with them at this celebration with Christ. And the celebration could last up to, up to seven days. I think it's interesting that the tribulation is seven years. And, we could be up there with the Lord for seven days before we return. It's the language of marriage. Christ returns to take back his bride. At the end of this age, there's a wedding. In fact, the climax of human history is a wedding between Christ and the church. Jesus, the son of God, paid the price to purchase his bride through his death on the cross. It's the greatest love story ever told. And the question is, don't you want to be a part of that story? Don't you want to be a part of his bride? And here's what I want to leave you with. Jesus indicated that his return is imminent. There's no more signs. There's no more things we're waiting for. Jesus is so anxious to come back. He's just waiting for the father's approval to push the door open and come back and sweep his bride away. We've been delivered from the wrath to come. We've been delivered from the hour of trial through the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you part of the bride of Jesus? Would you like to be part of the bride of Jesus? Are you ready for that door to swing open today and for Christ to return? Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning, I, I, I can't preach this message and not give you the opportunity to join the bride of Christ. If you want to be a part of God's love story, we say here it's as easy as ABC. A, you have to admit that you've sinned. You've broken God's law 
And because you've broken his law, you are condemned and separated from him. But B, you have to believe that Jesus came to the earth. He was the son of God. He lived a sinless life. He died a criminal's death in order to take your sin upon himself, to, to bear the wrath of God, to bear the punishment of God, to bear the judgment of God for you so you could be free. You have to believe in Christ and, and then commit your life to making Jesus the leader of your life. You're no longer the leader of your life. If you're ready to do that this morning, I want you to pray with me. So just say, Lord, in your heart, say, Lord, I, I know I'm a sinner. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've lusted, I, I've done a lot of it. And I'm, I'm guilty, I need your forgiveness. Ask the Lord right now, say, Lord, forgive my sin. I believe you died on a cross to pay the price for my sin so that I could be married to you and restored to you. And Lord, right now in this moment, I, I commit my life to serving you. I, I commit to following you as the leader and the Lord of my life. And Lord, most of us are here that are here this morning. We, we already know you. We're already grateful for the cross. We're grateful that you paid the price that we could be joined to you eternally. But I'm praying, Lord, this morning for us as we go into the world this week, that you would put in our hearts an urgency, an, an urgency, Lord, for our family, an urgency for our friends, an urgency for everyone around us that doesn't know Christ. I pray that we would be those that passionately and urgently preach the good news of Jesus, that he's coming back soon and we need to be ready. God, give us boldness this week to preach your truth in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning, friends? If you need prayer this morning for anything, maybe you prayed that prayer for the first time, we're gonna have some folks up here to pray. And, and if not, man, go into your relational world this week, share the urgency of the, the message of Jesus. God bless you.